If you take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Father, we ask, Lord, as we continue our study in the book of Matthew, we ask that you would bless us as we read the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that the words would resonate within us, that, Father, they would take root in our hearts and minds, that the truths and the wisdom would become cemented in our, in our minds, that, Father, we may be duly influenced and changed by the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for the truth. We thank you, Lord, that we have the truth. We thank you, Lord, that we can understand the truth. We thank you, Lord, that we believe the truth. We ask, Lord, you now help us to live the truth every day. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we were working our way through the Beatitudes, the main thing to keep in mind as we move to this section here on salt and light is for those who attain, those who possess the characteristics that are described in the Beatitudes become two things, that's salt and light. So if you are a believer, that's what we are. We are salt and light. And he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste. So... I want to jump in immediately to the language that's used here in, in the Greek text, where it says has lost its tape, taste. It's actually a word which means foolish, which is kind of unusual in a sense when you look at the sentence and what's going on here in this paragraph. It does mean to make dull. It means to cause something to lose its taste or the purpose for which it exists. So there's, you know, one sense there's a relationship there between those two things, you know, losing its taste and losing the purpose for which it exists. But also there's a disconnect because those can be two completely different things. The word is used to refer to basically when you, when you try to think about what's being said here and what Christ is, I believe, trying to communicate is the word that's used this for loss of taste, which really means foolishness, really refers to the individual disregarding God or disregarding the teachings of Jesus and refusing to obey it. So we, we've gone through the Beatitudes of what we possess as believers, that, that description there, you know, the, the merciful, et cetera, that all those things should encompass the same individual. Those aren't all separate individuals. That that's what we are, as we, we should even strive for more of that to be expressed in our lives, but this is what we have received from God. You know, I, am, I have received mercy, then I'm going to be more merciful, then of course the more mercy that I express the greater mercy that's going to be shown to me by God. There's that, that, that give and take that, that's kind of described there 
in that. So the individual then, being salt and, and light, which is what we are, because we're, we're not trying to be salt and light, we are that. But then he describes what that should mean for us as individuals. So if we disregard the teachings of Jesus and refuse to obey the Jesus, and we refuse to obey the commands of Jesus, clearly we have a problem as individuals. And of course, he's going to relate it here to the whole idea of salt and light. Those who disobey his teaching are like ruined salt that has lost its ability to purify. Now, I've heard a lot of messages on this passage uh, throughout my life and have read several things, several commentaries and several articles on it. And I did some research about salt itself. I mean, I know what salt is. I use it, but I have no idea what salt is. And so basically what I learned was that salt itself, which is sodium chloride, is extremely stable and it cannot lose its flavor which I didn't know that. I, I even heard individuals before explain that, well, when salt, because he says when salt loses its saltiness, but that doesn't mean that the salt has lost its flavor. Salt cannot lose its flavor. Salt has no expiration date. Salt products that contain iodine or seasonings uh, that contain other ingredients, such as spices and colors and flavors, can deteriorate over time. But again, there's no expiration date on salt. But salt can still go bad. Salt that has gone bad will usually have signs such as clumping together or discoloration. So it's important to note that while expired table salt may no longer possess a good flavor, it's still safe for consumption. But as you think about that in light of what Jesus has said, and then try to think about that in what it means for us today as believers, how that applies to our lives, how should this affect our thinking? I think the idea is this. Number one, for salt to lose its saltiness, it is, has to be diluted with water. That would then mean that for us, the gospel would have to be diluted in our life. When we become complacent, when we become complacent, we don't really protect the truth of the gospel in our life from other ideas and ideologies. Whether those ideas and ideologies are Buddhism, Islam, American culture, whatever, we mix the truth with a myriad of other ideologies. Believers actually do that oftentimes just on a day-to-day -day normal basis. We're not always evaluating what we're hearing and what we're seeing. We're just listening and in a sense just absorbing. And sometimes what begins to happen is we can, without thinking, begin to mimic or say what the world says. And here's an example of that. And most people understand that um, this, this normally within Christian circles is no longer said. But people would at times used to say... Um, God helps those who help themselves. And many people think that's from the Bible. What's this got nothing to do with the Bible? It's not in the Bible anywhere. That's not a biblical concept. You know, it actually comes from Benjamin Franklin. He wrote it in Poor Richard's Almanac. All right, so what happens, though, is because it's said often enough, said in a culture at one time that was at least heavily influenced by Christianity, many people began to assume that that was a, some kind of a biblical stance, and then the assumption took root, and that was it. So without evaluating that or thinking about it through the light of Scripture, that was just accepted. It seemed to make sense. Well, of course, God helps those who help themselves. And of course, that matches with the ideology of, I guess you would call that rugged individualism, which is really celebrated in our culture. I'm not saying rugged individualism is a bad thing. That's not, that's not, should be, that's not our goal. Our goal really is to be like Christ. That whole rugged individualism, uh, rugged individualism may be a, a good thing, but 
that's not what the real goal is for you and I as Christians. So we can very easily then, in that sense, begin to mimic or repeat what the world says uh, without really thinking. Now, obviously that's you know, not really going to maybe deeply affect our lives, but we begin to, at times, at least some Christians do, begin to reflect more and more what the world says. It is the world that says that there are many ways to God. Just so you know, there aren't. There's only one. As you have heard, and maybe you already know, many people in the world hate it when we say that. There's only one way to God. They don't like that. Now, again, we didn't make that up. That is what Jesus said. There's no way to get around that. He did say he was the only way. He was the absolute only way to God. That's it. Some say that all paths lead to heaven. Well, they, they don't. Actually, all paths but one do lead to hell, but, but they all don't lead to the same place. They don't do that. So what takes place is, is that just on, those, on that level, and then on many other, maybe even small things, we begin to absorb what the world says. So what happens is the gospel is kind of being diluted. We're not thinking about it or protecting it, so to speak, in our lives. We're not evaluating everything we hear in the light of what the Word of God says. And so as a result then, we begin as salt to lose our saltiness. Our ability to be what God wants us to be is diminished. Your ability to be what God wants you to be in your family is diminished. What God wants you to be uh, in your work relationships becomes diminished. What you are in your neighborhood, what you are anywhere becomes diluted. It becomes diminished because we're not living the way we ought to live. We're not thinking the way we ought to think. Now, I don't want you to begin to think somehow that, oh, good grief, there's no way I'm going to be able to live my life evaluating everything that's said. Actually, you can't. You don't have to actually stop and sit down and think about it. The more that we're influenced by the Word of God, because your brain works immeasurably fast, you can do that just as you, as you just live your life. You're kind of already doing that anyway, but this is in a more distinct biblical way as Christians. That's why, again, we need to make sure that we are being exposed to the Word of God on a regular basis. Reading the Word of God on a regular basis. Listening to the Word of God on a regular basis. Studying the Word of God on a regular basis. We need that. Every aspect of our life has been corrupted by sin. Including not only what we think, but the way we think. So we want to think biblically. And so if we're not following through on what he's talking about here in this passage, uh, in general and here specifically, we then become this disappointment, this salt then that is losing its ability to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. And there then becomes this mixing of ideologies with our Christianity. And, so, and that becomes extremely problematic in many ways. I find it interesting also that, you know, salt can be used as a herbicide. Salt leaches into the ground and essentially sterilizes it, preventing vegetative regrowth. It will kill any weed or grass that's growing, and it can keep them away for years, which had me thinking about it. So then, if we are losing our ability to be used in the correct way that salt would be used, and we are then losing our saltiness or uh, the, our, the salt is becoming diluted in our lives, that then can mean that as defiled salt, we then can prevent others from growing in their knowledge of God. We are, we are salt, we're still salt, but now we are the negative effects of salt in their life. 
Think about your family. Maybe, oh, don't think about your family. I don't want you to feel too bad right now. Let's just think about someone else's family. Right, think about someone else who's not living the Christian life, where you, have, where you can see the effects of maybe their inconsistencies in the life of their kids. Because we can always see that really quick. We can't see ours, but we can see theirs. But we see that, where, or we see, where we see where kids growing up in homes seem to have a uh, distaste or become disillusioned or just aren't even interested in spiritual things. Now, I'm, now, just again, when we say that, that doesn't mean that every time you see a wayward kid, that means mom and dad are, have lost their saltiness. It, there can be many reasons why that happens. But it can also mean this, that mom and dad who are believers are not being the influence they're supposed to be. They are like the salt you spread to kill weeds. And so you're preventing growth because you and I, we don't take the Bible seriously, which is proven by our lack of obedience. Right? It's, it's important for us to recognize that everything we do has an effect on other people, especially those who watch us the most, which begins with our children and our grandchildren. So when salt is no longer valuable, when it's disposed of, it does have to be disposed of very carefully so you can avoid killing plants. So what happens is, is those who are called to purify the earth are themselves corrupt. Their witness is counterproductive, and it destroys instead of transforming. Now what is interesting is the word trample. So when he says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now this trampled word here is used again in Matthew 7, which we'll get to soon. Uh, where he says, do not give uh, dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So the Greek word that's used there is katapateo, uh, which means to not only trample, but it means to reject with disdain or despise. So the emotion in the word then is that when this salt has lost its uh, proper use, when it's thrown on the paths, uh, you know, the, the past where people are walking or traveling, whatever, it's not just a simple discarding, but it's a throwing out because it's being, re it's being rejected, right? That's, that's kind of the emotion that's in that idea. So I, I guess what we could carry along with that is, is when, when the individual has lost that, abil the, that ability to influence the way we should, this rejection that takes place, there's this displeasure by the Lord. There's maybe even a displeasure from others, you know, I don't know if you've, you've been aware of this, but there are times that when, when prominent Christians mess up morally, it is interesting to see how the world reacts. They seem sometimes even more upset than believers. There's many different reasons for that. Some, there are clearly, there are those who are rejoicing when a, a well-known believer messes up morally. They rejoice. They're like, yeah, just stick it to those stinking Christians. Look at them. They're like, they're all hypocrites kind of a thing. So there is part of that going on. But there's also something else that's going on often. And that is this. Remember that the world, the, the unbelieving world, they are looking. They're looking for truth. They're, they're looking for the, the source of absolute joy and meaning in life. Now, they, they don't want to accept Christianity. But even though they don't want to accept Christianity, there's, there's still a desire for something they can sink their teeth into. 
And so sometimes the reaction of the world where there's, there's a very public disdain and, and mocking of Christians or Christianity when someone well-known falls morally is because they are overly disappointed that it doesn't seem real. They kind of want the gospel to be real. They, want, they are not accepting it, but they still want it. It, it makes them feel maybe safe kind of a thing. I read a, a book on missions, well, several different books on missions, and a couple of them made this point that when it comes to individuals who are watching Christians and how they respond to the way we live, he says there's this thing that's going on in their mind where they desperately want you as a believer to fail. Because if you fail, in their mind, it lets them off the hook when it comes to the truth of Christianity. At the very same time, they desperately want you to not fail because they want to know that truth is there. They may not verbalize that openly, but they desperately desire that. And so when a Christian fails, sometimes for some of them, it's almost as if they're living in a world where there's no hope, and now when the believer fails, now there really is no hope. It's kind of a strange thing that's going on there. But I, I think it's kind of related back to the idea that we're given in both um, the book of Ecclesiastes and Romans, that all men know that God does exist. They know that. They know there is an absolute being. They know there's an absolute good being. They know that. And so when you, you look at other religions, for many of them, the closest anything comes to rightly defining what they imagine uh, an absolute good being would be like is going to be Christianity. And we've, sometimes we kind of take the rug out from under them. So this is important. We, you will have an effect on others for good or for bad, but you will always have an effect on others. And I want to be the individual who is rejected with a sense of disdain. So we need to recognize that even though we're not in a, in a humanistic psychological sense, there's a phrase they use, they talk about individuals being people pleasers. And that you don't want to be a people pleaser. That may be true. Um, and you don't want to live your life dependent on what people think about you. At the same time, it's still very important. You need to be, we need to grasp that as being important. I do want to please others, but not according to what their expectations are. I want to be pleasing to them because I'm living up to what God says that I should be. That's the desire. The desire there is to, to be uh, an individual. I want to be the guy they can count on. They may not want to count on me, but I want to be the guy they can count on. They're not my friend, but I'm going to be their friend. They, they may not like the truth that I live by, but they know that there's truth. And God may move into life one day where they want to know that truth. And it does happen. There are people that you know, you may be unaware that they are watching you. And they are, they're in that, in that um, uh, place in their life where they want you to succeed and they want you to fail at the same time. And so we need to be very athletic. That's why we ask God for grace and strength uh, to live the way we should. But just one more side note along with that, which is really very important. Do not think that that means that you must be perfect and if you're never not perfect in front of them, you've blown it forever. That's untrue. Now, that doesn't mean that you want to strive to be unperfect. But the idea is this. So when you do mess up, because we mess up, it is vitally important 
that you go to those that you work with or those that you associate with on a regular basis, because those are normally people that are watching you, whether they're doing it consciously or in a sense unconsciously. You want to go to them and ask them to forgive you. First of all, that will shock them and stun them that you've done that. Number two, they would try to, they normally would try to back off and say, oh no, it's not a big deal, or like, forgive you for what? Explain to them what you did why, and why it was wrong and why you recognize it as being sinful. You doing that will, at times, make some of them feel very uncomfortable. They, they don't like hearing that. Because remember, we live in a society where you never admit you're wrong. Just listen to politicians. When, when they say one thing and then something else happens, they go, I, you took me out of context. No, we, we didn't. You actually used those words. You know, we, but you can see them backpedaling and trying to find ways to whatever. All right, so the, we live in a world where that's the norm. So when you are willingly embracing that you failed, that, that they don't like that. All right, it puts a, kind of puts a spotlight on, on them. But then not only then do you ask them to forgive you if they try to, they, if they try to say, oh, no, 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 that, that, that's okay. It's not a big deal. I, I wasn't offended. That's when you have the opportunity to say, well, the difficulty I have is I know that God was offended. And I, I, I cannot live with myself knowing that I've offended God. And, if I have in, in, and I believe that in some way what I did to you may have, because you don't know if it did, it may have diminished your view of God because I, I'm a Christian. And I want to make sure that you know that I recognize that. And as a Christian, I, I need to come clean and ask you to forgive me. Now, they may not say anything, but often that will stay with them for a while. And they will think about that for a while. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Because what happens is they recognize that, A, you don't think you're perfect. You know you're not perfect. And that there is this kind of embracing of your sin that is, goes, goes against the grain of the culture we live in. That, that reveals a, a confidence and a strength that you possess that many people don't possess. And you have that. And now it's on display as you ask them to forgive you. I, I know that can be hard. We, and we don't, and you, know, you, don't, you don't go and ask them to forgive you because you borrowed their pen and didn't give it back. We don't, make, we don't become dramatic about that. I'm talking about when you, when you lose your cool or maybe when you say something you shouldn't have said. Or maybe when you didn't mean to but you ended up gossiping about somebody. Even if it was true, you gossiped about them. The idea there is that you let them know that you take these things very seriously, that Christians ought not to do that, and that you are, that you do consider yourself to be a real Christian. And then if they say to you, because I've actually heard some people say this, I've, I've just never known a Christian to do that, then you would say, I'm sorry that you've never met a Christian like that before. You're not saying, because I'm great. You're not doing that, but you want to again show the difference that, that even we recognize that there are some people who say they're Christians who may not be, and that we are striving for that, and that we're living in the grace of God. So there really can open up some opportunities, and you may not have that, you know, you may not, I'm not saying you're going to have that opportunity every week because you're always messing up, right, because we're not normally always messing up, but in those moments, I believe it can be very powerful, and so you ask God to give you the words, give you the wisdom, give you the opportunity, take the opportunity, pursue it, and make sure that you speak to them one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, however many it is, and let them know that your relationship with the Lord is so important that you are compelled to go to them and ask them to forgive you because you offended them. And let them hear how, and let them see in you 
the strength, the power of Jesus himself. So that, that's significant and really very important. If you go on to verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket and put on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the light of verse 14 is the good works that are mentioned in verse 16. Uh, a professor, Holdcroft, says this, The kingdom person, that's the believer, as the light of the world, and as one individual lamp, must make his or her influence felt and not attempt concealment. The one thing that a light must do to be a light is shine. The believer is to have a useful effect upon the earth and not exist merely for the sake of personal advantage. Amen. So the idea is that we must be aware that we all have, we all have a special calling from the Lord. We've all been adopted as believers. We've been adopted by God into his family. In the same way that God intended to use Israel to reveal the one true God to the world, he desires to use us to reveal to the world who he is and what he is. And so he then desires that we have an influence on the world. He wants us to change the world. But this is, again, not this idea that you and I change the world by some kind of moral movement or political movement or whatever the case may happen to be. But the idea is, is that we are, and we, we should know this, that we want to deal with the root problem that all men have. And that is, again, sin. A word they don't like to think about. Some Christians don't like to think about it. Um, you, you, I want you to understand that sometimes, you know, if, if a non-believer comes to our church service when we have our prayer of confession, I'm sure for most of them, they've never heard that before. And, and what are these people that confessing their sins? Well, what is all that about? And you have the opportunity to explain to them that in a sense we, it sounds weird, but we joyfully confess our sins to God. I, I want to know what they are. I want these things to be out. I, I want to be changed. I want to be different. I don't want to have to keep confessing my sins to God. But I'm not doing it to be saved. No, I'm doing this because he has saved me. And I know that my sin is disappointing him. And it, it, it does have a negative impact on our relationship. And he's never going to leave me. But he desires for me righteousness and holiness. And, I, and the way that we achieve this through his power and strength is by having the mind of Christ, which is having this abhorrence towards sin. Towards my sin. Not, not the sin of others. My sin. That is, we are being an influence. Remember that, that it's not just the, the evangelist, so to speak, that goes around and gives the gospel to others that, that somehow we have to become something like that to be used by God. That's, that's, that, that's a good thing, but all of us are to be an influence, and all of us are an influence. It's not that you wake up in the morning and you say, now, what ten things can I do today to be an influence on others? You don't have to do that. You can if you want to, but the idea is, is that it becomes a part of who you are. If, if you think about influence... Most of us, maybe all of us, influence some other people all the time. Just like other people influence us all the time. It happens. Just by being together, by having conversations, especially those that we are, we are around uh, a, a great deal. You see it with your children. Whether you know it or not, your children learn a great deal from you. It is sometimes hilarious to see how kids sometimes just walk, because they walk like mom and dad. I've caught my boys before walking with a limp when they were younger. 
And what, you know, because I used to limp a lot. And I'm like, what are you doing? Are you hurt? And they're like, no, why? I go, you're limping. I am? I go, yeah, you're, yeah, you're limping. All right? But they do that. Or, you know, sometimes people may have, maybe they, anyway, it, it can get kind of funny, just especially the certain, certain way some of us wiggle when we walk, and they do the same thing. It's just, it can be funny. And sometimes they express themselves in the same way. Uh, that's always not so funny. Um, but that's why sometimes it takes a certain amount of maturity to teach Sunday school, because you learn about families through little kids. But the idea is, is that you have this influence on your children just by being their parent and living together. And so, but we do need to be aware of that, very much so. And so, that, so the idea as Christians is that wherever you are, whatever family you are in, wherever you work, there is an expectation from God that you will influence those individuals. Now, that doesn't mean then that you have to be able to give a report in one year where someone asks you, now how many times did you verbally share the gospel? Now that's not a bad question to ask yourself. But you, you, it is possible you may not have had an opportunity to be able to do that in the settings that you're in. And that's not a cop-out. On the other hand, there are many opportunities we have to live out the gospel in a sense to reveal what the gospel is as we live lives, the way we treat people, where others will begin to notice that we are different than others. And that can be sometimes time-consuming, where it begins to affect them, but that doesn't matter. It's not a sprint. We just keep at it. And we also pray that God would, would give us opportunities, to help us to recognize opportunities to be able to share the gospel. Those can be hard and few between when it comes to, you know, work environment, but nonetheless, they can come. And we need to be ready when they come. Because God often will use the normal trauma that people have in life to get them to that point. What I mean by that is everybody loses loved ones in their family. There's people who are dying. And there are times that that person is particularly close to a certain individual. And it may just begin with nothing more than you saying you are praying for them, or them asking you to pray for them, and that begins to open that door a little bit. And we just ask the Lord to help us to be able to move through that carefully to move through that clearly with great wisdom and that it would lead to being able to share the gospel. But God wants us to be this influence. There's this expectation. That's why we, we, don't, we don't look at the Beatitudes and say, well, one day I want to be salt. No, you are salt. Right now you're salt. You need to so now think about that in this way because we don't always think of it this way. If, so if you are 10 years old and you're a Christian, there's an expectation that you will be salt and light among your circle of friends, period. There's an expectation from God that you won't speak like your friends. They may cuss and swear. You don't do that. You don't have to call them out on that, but you don't do that. Your friends will become aware of that in time. There's an expectation uh, that when you declare that you go to church with your parents, that you're not going to be saying, oh, I got to go to my church with my parents on Sunday so I can't come to your party. Right, that's not a really good thing. That's not a good way to express it. You say, oh man, Sunday? Nah, I go to church, I go to church with my parents on Sunday. And then if someone says, oh, do you have to? You should say, well, I want to. Because you're why? You're a Christian. That's, that's what we do. Right, they may never get it, but they may get it. But, but the idea is that you're still having an influence on them. They still have to think about the things that you say and what you do. So I don't want you to think that if you're a kid, somehow that this is something that you might get to when you're an adult. No, you are an adult. 
You're, you're in that sense, you are expected to be salt and light. Now, let's say that you are no longer working and you're very old, uh, whatever that age that is, we'll say what it is, but you're very old, and so you don't get around like you used to, but you still get around. There's still people that you know, both believers and non-believers. We ought to be an influence on both believers and non-believers. That's really important. You may have older friends like yourself, and they don't really trust the Lord like they should. They might be Christians, but they still, they start to fret and worry about things that they really should not do that with. You can be a great influence on them. You may still have, hopefully you do, some unbelieving friends. More than anyone else, you know time is short. You know, people our age die every day. We, we need to say, Lord, I, I need to find a way to talk to you. And when you get older, sometimes there's more freedom to be able to do certain things. So if you're 80 and your friend is 80, you can just say, you know, Mildred, I think about death a great deal because I know I'm going to die soon. I don't know when. It, it could be tomorrow. I, I don't want it to be, but, but I think a lot about that. Are you ready for death? Amen. To me, that would be kind of a normal conversation if you're 80. It would not be a normal conversation if you're 40. Right? So you have opportunities where you can bring things up that maybe you wouldn't normally be able to bring up. And they, they may not want to talk about it, and that's okay. But you broach the subject. And you know what? Maybe later they'll come back to you and say, I've been thinking about why did you bring up death the other day? So you just repeat yourself. Well, you know, I'm 80. So are you. We know we don't live forever. You know, and heaven, heaven and hell is a real, real thing. You know, and they may give that old standard answer. Well, I'm just hoping that, I, that, I, that my good outweighs my bad. And that's when you say, it won't. Don't say, well, I hope you're right. Don't do that. Right? Because you know that's the wrong way. You want to be more specific. And just tell them what you know to be true. What do you know to be true? No matter how much good you have, that's, it's the, it won't outweigh your bad. That's not how you get to heaven anyway. That's not how you get to heaven. And then you have an opportunity to share with them the gospel. And you don't have to make them believe it. God takes care of that part. You just share the gospel with them. Explain to them what it is that you believe and what you're thankful for. So we are to be salt and light. A light performs a service. It's a ministry that allows others to see how life that is a credit to God should be lived. You see, the disciple inherits the righteous character of the Heavenly Father, and this righteous character then produces good works. And this righteous living is essential to the mission of purifying a corrupt world and bringing salvation to others. So we do good things but we do so because we're Christians and because we want to honor the Father. Again, as I mentioned before, we want to change the world. The way we change the world is we don't change it politically. We can't do that. The way to change the world isn't to rewrite the laws. That doesn't work. I'm not saying you shouldn't rewrite certain laws. That would be a great thing. But you do know that no matter how much the laws change, let's say for against abortion, you do know abortion is still going to take, take place, right? There may be less of them, but it's still going to happen. You know why, right? Because man, is, his heart is darkened with sin, and he was in rebellion to God. And when man sins, he's going to find ways to, to deal with whatever he thinks his problems are or her problems are in their own way, and it's going to happen. And so you can rewrite the laws, but you'll never end abortion in that sense. So again, I'm not saying don't rewrite the laws. It's still a good thing. To change the rule, we don't do that through marching. It's not trying to, to, to use all the technical paraphernalia to alter society. I'm not saying don't use those things, but that's not going to do it. 
The way to change the world is to infiltrate it with what? Goodness and godliness. That's the, and, and that's why Philippians says what? It's already a truth. You have been placed in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we're already, we've already been positioned by God. So you are, wherever you work, you've been placed there by God. All right? So that's why we need to be careful. We say, well, you know, I work in such a place, but I'm asking God to give me a new job where, I, where I'm working only with Christians. That may not be a godly request. Now, I'm not saying that it's necessarily sinful, but it could be. Because God's placed you there among all those unbelievers. Not so that you can get tired of their antics, but that you can be light and salt in their life. In some cases, you might want to ask yourself, if you leave, who's left? Who's left that's going to care for them and pray for them and share the gospel with them when they go through difficult times? Who's going to do that if you, if you leave? That, that's an important question. And, so, and we need to consider that because of what God has called you and I to be. So again, the way to change the world is to infiltrate it with godliness, righteousness, and holiness, to affect you from the inside out. Again, the other things I mentioned aren't necessarily wrong, but they're powerless. Think of it this way. I got this from another pastor. He said this, Never has the church been more involved in social action in our country. Never has the church been more involved in social action in recent history in our country. Never have we been so preoccupied with endeavoring to see Christianity in government. And what is the result? We now have a society that is more immoral than ever before because it's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to influence, is the influence of a godly life. We do need to remember that. It's vital that we remember that. It isn't just our words, it's our very overt, open, godly conduct. It's both those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And thus in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, it says to you and me, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So my prayer for you, I want your prayer to be for me, is that we fully embrace the idea that we are salt and light, to be salt and light where we are now, and ask God to bless our feeble efforts and look forward to the things that God's going to do. Accept where you are until those things are changed by God. If you find yourself that you are the individual trying to hide your light, or you're the individual where you're, you're allowing your, your personal life to uh, no longer live in light of the gospel, you've been kind of diluting that, well, you need to change that. You confess that to the Lord and ask him to help you basically get on board with living the Christian life that you are to live and to recognize the strength, power of the gospel of Christ to change your life as well as, a, as the lives of others. It can be a bumpy road at, time, at times, but it can be a joyful ride, and it is at least filled with a lot of adventure. And you'd be amazed at the ways that God would be able to use you in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, love, and incredible mercy. Father, sometimes it's astounding that you are able to and that you actually desire to use people like us in the lives of others. That you're able to use people like us to bring the greatest message that exists in all of history to touch the lives of those who don't know you. 
But Father, we, we pray that you would help us to fully embrace that, that we would have a very strong desire to want to be used by you in the lives of others. And that, Father, you would allow those who are living in such a way to have the great joy of seeing the effects of their lives on other people. It's encouraging, Father, to see that. And we thank you. Father, there are some people here today who are unable to really identify with the things that we're saying because they're not salt and light, because they don't know Christ. They've, they've never been able to give a godly influence because they don't know you. As always, we pray for them that your spirit would reveal to them their need of Christ, that they would be convicted of their sin and recognize that that is a, a distance, that gap between you and them can never be crossed in any other way except through Jesus Christ and that they will not be able to build a bridge of good works or anything to bridge that chasm. And so, Father, we ask that you would deal with them both firmly and gently and kindly and bring them to yourself. Father, we praise your name and thank you, Lord, for the words of Christ. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.